Our scripture lesson today comes from the good news, the gospel of John, chapter 8. Let's share in God's good word together. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you are blamers? When something goes wrong in your life, how many of you want to know exactly whose fault it is? Or worse yet, you already know whose fault it is with no facts necessary. Today we come to a really important lesson. Own your stuff. If this describes you, welcome to humanity. Welcome to the human condition. Every person on the planet battles with blame. But I want to encourage you to give it up today and to own your stuff. My name is Mark Foster. I'm the founding senior pastor of the people known as Acts 2 United Methodist Church. And I struggle sometimes to own my own stuff. And I bet you do too from time to time. Today's lesson could change the entire trajectory of your life. It's especially important to all of our students who are graduating this weekend. This lesson can make the difference between a life of joy and peace or a life of hardship and chaos. Today we're looking at own your stuff. Will you say that with me? Own your stuff. We are in the fifth week of our sermon series, Disrupted. What to do when you don't know what to do. And so before we own our stuff, we are, there's some things that we need to remember together. The first is this, that we need to be able to say yes to God. When God leads and God makes a way, we have to step into that way. The psalm says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Will you say love with me? Love. This is who God is. God is love, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We have to remember this first if we ever hope to get to the point of being able to own our stuff before a good and loving and merciful God. We have to know this about God before we can get to the rest of the steps. 
The Lord is good to all, and His compassion is over all that He has made. The second principle that we looked at is that we have to choose our traveling companions wisely. We all need people around us, and we use the metaphor of having people in our boat. And we want people who are rowing along with us or paddling along with us. It's really important to choose the people that you're going to do life with, particularly in moments like now when our lives are disrupted. It's really important that we have a community of faith around us, people that can pray for us and support us and come alongside us in the way that God is making for us together. The scripture says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall... One will lift up the other, but woe to one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. We are made for one another. We are not meant to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone, and we'll look at that more in a moment. The third principle is this, that Jesus tells us to ask, to ask, search, and knock. It actually spells ask. Jesus says, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Last week, we looked at the fourth principle, which is to leave your baggage behind. Will you say that with me? Leave your baggage behind. God wants to free you and to set you free for a good and wonderful life. But we can't carry all the weights and hurts and pains of the past up that mountain together. We need to lay it down so that we can be free in Christ. And we can do that because our faith has taught us for thousands of years that God is a merciful and wonderful God that is ready to forgive. The psalmist says it like this, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far God removes our transgressions from us. And so now we're ready to step into owning our stuff. We're going to look at blame and what it can do to our lives. And, and you may be thinking, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a blamer. Uh, and I would like to think of myself that way too. But as we look at this, let's just play a little game. I've got three questions for you. The first is this. When you are overwhelmed uh, with your responsibility with the kids, is it because your spouse works too much to help? If it is, you might be a blamer. Here's another question. When you have financial struggles, is it because of your spending or is it because your spouse doesn't make enough money? If it is, you might be a blamer. Or maybe a third question. When someone mentions something you do that bothers them, that causes them distress or harm, do you receive it and assess it or do you lose it on them? you can't take any kind of criticism from people that love you and care about you, then you might be a blamer. And that's a problem. But it's a problem we all have. It's called the human condition. The Bible opens in Genesis with a story about humanity. It tells us more about us than maybe even about God. But God's in the story too, and it reminds us of who God is. Imagine with me that you're sitting around a campfire and you're teaching the children of your community what it is uh, to be a person and and what people are like and and who God is. And God creates a beautiful heaven and earth and waters and skies and trees and a paradise for us to live in. But Adam, this little red clay, God takes the clay and he breathes into it. The Ruach, the breath of life, and he becomes Adam, the Adamah. 
the first human being on the planet. A little bundle of appetites he creates, God does. And it's good, except Adam's lonely. And so uh, God creates woman that Adam wouldn't have to be alone. Uh, After all of the animals, kangaroos and alligators and armadillos and, and birds and every sorts of thing, Adam names them and it's good. But he wasn't satisfied. And so God gives him woman that they would be partners in life. And then the story takes a turn in Genesis 3. And I want to share the story with you. It goes like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her the whole time, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, which in Hebrew means vulnerable. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid because they were afraid. The man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, what happens, friends, is that guilt and anxiety prompt humans, all of us, to attempt to hide from God. But the good news is there's no reason to hide from God because God loves you. God is ready, more ready to hear you and work with you than you are even to pray or connect with Him. You see, God's love for His children did not and does not change. See, they're hiding, but God is walking. God is coming to them in the evening breeze like God had done every night before. God hadn't changed. His love for His kids hadn't changed. It was their understanding of their vulnerability, their anxiety, their guilt, and their shame about what they had done. So the story continues. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was vulnerable, I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You see, God reaches out to us to reconcile, to be there with us, to be at one with us, which is why Christ came for the atonement, the at-one-ment. And so we're here together, God looking, searching for his children. He knows your address. He's looking for you. And as God reaches out to us, we blame others. Our first response is not to take responsibility for ourselves, but to try to push it off and act as if it didn't happen. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Notice that God comes to Adam and Adam blames God for giving him Eve in the first place. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me. God goes to Adam, Adam blames God, Adam blames Eve. God comes to Eve, and Eve blames the snake. The servant tricked me, and I ate. And that leads us to the problem of blame. 
We all deal with it. From the beginning of time, humanity has dealt with the problem of blame. But you can be free of it starting today. It's a long journey, but it's one I hope you'll take with me. Because blame disconnects us from empathy. Will you say that with me? Blame disconnects us from empathy. Imagine that if nothing is ever your fault, you won't experience any of the emotions or feelings or learnings that you get from challenges. And so when somebody else has a problem, you won't know anything about it because you've never had a problem. It's always been someone else's problem. And so the way we gain empathy is by going through hardships ourselves. And if we don't own the hardship, then we can't be empathetic. The other thing that blame does is that it gives us a false sense of control. If, if I can say, oh, it's not my fault, it's her fault, and she says it's not my fault, it's the snake's fault, then it's nobody's fault. And somehow I think that I've got control. When in reality, just the opposite has just happened. Because now I have to try to keep up the lie or the facade that I didn't have anything to do with it. When I know, and everybody else knows, that sooner or later that's, we're all going to be found out. See, the reality of blame is this, that it's simply the discharging of pain and discomfort. When we're in pain, when we have anxiety, when we're fearful, we blame others because we don't want that to come to us. But the real wicked, terrible part of blame is that it keeps us stuck in shame. When we have passed the buck on someone else about something, We hope that it's not brought up again. We're not at a family conversation saying, oh yeah, you remember that time when so-and-so did this? We never bring it up because we're ashamed. And and we know that if we do bring it up, it's very likely that that's going to boomerang back on us. So we try to keep that a secret. In the 12-step groups, they always say this, you're only as sick as your secrets. And that's what shame does. It keeps you sick because you don't want to talk about it. Brene Brown, the um, widely known shame researcher, says this. She says, if blame is driving, shame is riding shotgun. She's exactly right. They always go together. When you find yourself blaming someone else, you might know that you're quickly going to shame them or be mean to them. Uh, That all gets wrapped up together. If blame is driving, shame is riding shotgun. And so the good news is that the Bible teaches us a way out of this dynamic, out of this cycle of guilt and shame and isolation and depression. We call it the way of salvation, the way of Christ, that God came to us in Jesus, that we would know how much God loves us, that he would actually give himself for us, that we would be free of the guilt and the shame and the blame. So how do we do it? First of all, we have to own this, that when we deny our stuff, it enslaves us. When we act like we've got it all together, when we act like we're perfect, when we act like we don't have shame or guilt or anxiety, it enslaves us to repeat this over and over and over again and to pretend that everything's fine. And when you pretend that everything's fine, you can't actually do the work about the things in your life that aren't fine. So again, in the Gospel of John, it says this, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You see, when we own our stuff... Jesus helps us create a new life of freedom and joy. Even our ability to own our stuff, Jesus is helping with us. And then Jesus helps us create a new life of freedom and joy. Brene Brown talks about that until you own your stuff, 
You're going nowhere. But when you own your stuff, then you can actually write a new ending to your story. Because you're owning it and you're rewriting it or writing a new chapter to your life. When Jesus was on earth, his disciples struggled uh, with this concept too. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. And in essence, we don't know what to do. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, when we find the truth, we are set free because Jesus is the truth. Jesus uses the name of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the good news, friends, that when we find the truth, we find Jesus. When we find Jesus, we find the truth. And we don't have to be afraid of it because the truth loves us in Jesus. But so often we are afraid of the truth because there are all kinds of things in our life that we feel guilt and shame about. But it is the truth that sets us free. Doctors Henry Cloud and John Townsend uh, say it like this. The truth can sting, but it sets you free. Yes, the truth can sting. It can hurt. It can be unpleasant. And we have to own that, that the truth is not always pleasant. It can be difficult. It can be ugly. It can be hard. But until we get to it, we can't begin to change the narrative. If you read the Hebrew Scriptures, one of the things you find there is the beauty of a people who are able to say to God and to others, this is the book on me. This is who we are. This really, is, this really did happen. It was terrible, and I'm going to offer it to God because that's where healing and wholeness comes from. In Ezekiel, it says this, Then you shall remember your evil ways. There's no candy coating that. And your dealings that were not good. And you shall loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominable deeds. Now notice, they own this, but then they release it to God. Paul continues this thought in the early church. Paul taught the early church to surround themselves with truth. All the way around them. He uses the metaphor of a belt. He says, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. And this surrounding ourselves with truth yields the possibility of peace in our life. So again, as Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, he says this, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. But peace can't come until you get to the truth of your situation. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Again, Brene Brown says it like this. She says, you either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. Trying to keep up that image management. Friends, the peace of Christ, the peace of your life, the stopping of the spinning of the wheel comes when you tell the truth about you and offer that to God and allow Him to heal it and to help you start your journey anew. But as we begin this work, I want to give you a couple of words of caution and of wisdom. This new life that we talk about in Christ, it does not appear fully grown, but small and immature. And often... Uh, in our world here in America, when we think of small and immature, we don't think of those as good things. But friends, I want to reform that image for you like this. This is small and immature, and it is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Small and immature. When we give birth to new things, 
there's a beauty in it, but it's not ready to walk. It's not ready to talk. It may not be able to feed itself. It's not fully grown, but it is something beautiful that only God can do. And you and God together can grow that up and live into a new life of love and joy. But it is your responsibility. Henry Cloud says it like this. He says, whatever I need, want, or desire, God has a part for me to play in getting it. You see, the problems of your life are just that, your problems. And you have to own them and offer them up to God and then work with God to be a partner with God, a co-laborer with God in making a way forward. This is what we have to know, friends, that you and I, we are partners or co-laborers with God in making a way forward. God makes the way, but then we have to walk it out. Again, Paul, to the early church in Philippi, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have our part to play, friends, in the working out of our salvation. And now we come to a part that I really don't want to talk about and is kind of hard for me. And that is this. That the person who cares about the problem owns the problem. Will you say that with me? The person who cares about the problem owns the problem. And here's the thing. I'm a person who cares about a lot of things, which means I got to own a lot of problems if I want to be at peace in my life. And why is this true? Because ownership empowers us to act and it brings us freedom. Ownership empowers us to act and gives us freedom. Now, around my house, we have uh, a thing where we take out the trash on Tuesdays. Actually, Monday nights, they pick it up first thing on Tuesday morning. And then um, the trash cans are supposed to go back up into the backyard so they're not unsightly for the neighbors. But every once in a while, um, I'll take down the trash on Monday night and I'll leave out for work on Tuesday morning. And then I'll work, and sometimes I have meetings late into the night. And when I come back um, after a long day's work, sometimes the trash cans are still at the curb. They're not taken back up, even though sometimes there have been people at home all day doing who knows what. And I've got two choices. I can either be angry about the fact that the people inside did not do something thoughtful for me, Or I can get the trash cans and pull them up and not think another thing about it and let it go. Now, this happens every week for me. And I've got those choices to make each and every week. And here's the thing. The people inside are not bad people. They're good people. I love my family. I love the people in my house. But here's the thing. They don't care about the trash cans at the curb as much as I do. And I can either be upset or I can pull them up. And I bet that's true in your life too. There's some things that you care a lot about. And if you want to not worry about it anymore, if you want to have peace, you can act, you can be empowered, and you can have freedom to take control of your life. If dirty socks on the floor bothers you, pick them up. Because whoever left them there probably doesn't care. And you can either be in a power struggle with that other person uh, for the rest of your life, or you can pick them up. Now, I know there are ways that this can go way too far. And lots of things, but, but here's the thing. If you care about it, 
own it and be set free. And I know ownership feels uncomfortable at first, but it pays off later. You can set limits and boundaries about what you will and won't do, what you will pick up, what you won't pick up, what trash cans you will or won't take up and when. But you have the power to do that. You have the power to act. The opposite of ownership is blame. And blame feels good at first, but it ruins us over time because nothing ever changes when you blame others. When other people don't do what you think they should do because you'll remember no one has other control. Only sometimes do we even have self-control, but we never have other control. So I want to encourage you to take ownership, to take action and find the freedom in Christ. God is making a way. When you don't know what to do, God is making a way, but you have to walk it out. Now, this sermon is for 98% of us out there, but I know that there's 2% out there that when you hear this, you think, oh my gosh, everything is my fault. It's not. Nothing is ever anyone's 100% fault. Everybody has pieces of blame in that. So I want to ask you to resist the temptation to take all the blame. It's, It's never all the blame for anybody, but we do need to take responsibility for the pieces that we play so that we can change our lives, so that we can be free in Christ, that we can offer our life to Christ and let him transform it with our participation. So your action step this week are these. First, take responsibility for the pattern of your life. Last week, I asked you to actually look at the patterns of your life and to act on them. This week, now that you know what those patterns are and you're looking at them, I want you to take responsibility. Why? Because responsibility is a gift. I love this word because it really is broken down like this, that we want to ask God to create in you the ability to respond. It's response ability, which is a great thing. It is empowering to you that you would have freedom and joy in your life to be able to respond to the things that life is throwing at you. When your life's been disrupted, ask God to show you what is your ability to respond, your responsibility to the real challenges of life, and then thank God for it, that you have the power and participation for God to make a way and for you to walk it out, to take the next step, do the next right thing when you don't know what to do, and give God thanks for it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.